Hello and welcome to Heilman and Haver, the stage and screen podcast, episode 22, coming to you virtually from Casa de Quinn and 1111 Studios in beautiful Port Orchard, Washington. I'm Matt Haver. And I'm Greg Heilman. We're two local actors looking to hone our craft by exploring the best in local theater and on the big screen. Each week we bring you entertainment news and views, celebrate classic Hollywood, enjoy cocktails with a Tinseltown twist, interview talented local actors and directors, and chat with industry experts from LA to the UK. In a few moments, we'll be joined by film critic Matthew Turner, who will share a special event he's hosting this April celebrating classic pre-code films. And speaking of classics, there's another film hitting a milestone this month. Released 30 years ago, Silence of the Lambs, winner of the Big Five Oscar Awards, Best Picture, Best Actor for Anthony Hopkins, Best Actress for Jodie Foster, Best Director for Jonathan Demme, and Best Screenplay for the adaptation of Thomas Harris's novel by Ted Talley. To celebrate, the historic Roxy Theater in Bremerton is hosting two showings of Silence of the Lambs, both at 9 p.m. on Friday, April 9th and Saturday, April 10th. So visit farawayentertainment.com to buy tickets and join us on our YouTube channel next week for our next episode of In the Mix, dedicated to this iconic film and its unforgettable characters. We won't be drinking Chianti, but we will mix up a couple of cocktails in honor of Dr. Lecter, Agent Starling, and the rest of the Ghastly Gang. And we hope to see you at the Roxy for the special event. We'll be there Friday, April 9th, so come by, enjoy the movie, and make sure to stop by and wish us a good evening. If you've been a listener for long, you know that we're big on supporting local theater and entertainers and artists. And coming up on April 20th is the 2021 Kitsap Great Give for all of our local listeners. Uh, And those outside of the local area can give too. The Great Give is 24 hours of online giving hosted by the Kitsap Community Foundation in support of uh, the many nonprofits in Kitsap County. Uh, Two that are close to our hearts are the Historic Roxy Theater, which we just mentioned, uh, in Bremerton, and the Western Washington Center for the Arts in Port Orchard. Matt and I and many of our local listeners have acted at WWCA and enjoyed wonderful entertainment at the Roxy and strongly encourage you to support them this year. Your donations on April 20th will be magnified by bonus funds, but you don't have to wait until the 20th to donate. Early giving is open now. Links to the Great Give and the Roxy and WWCA websites are in the show notes, so check them out. Read up on this fantastic work that these two theaters are doing in our community, and please, please donate. Well, now we're pleased to be joined by a friend of the show, Matthew Turner. Matthew is a lifelong film fanatic who has turned his love of the art into an occupation. Matthew has been a professional film critic for over 20 years, and his reviews have been posted in multiple outlets in print and online. He is currently the co-host of the Fatal Attractions podcast, a favorite of this show's, and is the co-author and compiler of the recently published What to Watch When. Matthew's hosted multiple online viewing events, uh, most recently November, and has just launched this year's pre-code april events matthew welcome back welcome back to the show hello thanks for having me again i've really enjoyed it last time so it's a pleasure to be back uh we did too so as we mentioned in your bio and uh on your last appearance actually uh you're hosting a pre-code april event this month uh so first in case our listeners aren't aware of what pre-code refers to it uh, represents the period of time in film between the advent of talkies and the time that the production code also called the hayes code uh began being strictly enforced in 1934 Named after Will Hayes, a Presbyterian elder, go figure, who was brought in by the studios to resurrect Hollywood's image after some risque films uh, and off-screen scandals caused their image to tarnish. And the result was the creation of the Hayes Code, an act in 1930 and gradually implemented implemented until it was fully enforced beginning in 1934. It was a very specific period of time. Uh, So tell us again, Matthew, what drew you to bringing a focus to these pre-code movies and then uh, taking it a step further and and hosting this event in April? 
I yeah, I just want to before we start, I just want to kind of slightly clarify in that I didn't exactly co I didn't exactly host a, a November event. I just joined in with November like everybody else. It's just I was particularly vociferous about it and posted nonstop throughout November, two years running now, about film noir movies. That was that was created by somebody else. Like that, that whole idea, uh, Maria um, at Old Films Flickr is the uh, is the sort of originator of that so inspired by that i mean i had such a good time doing november for two years running that i uh, inspired by that is uh, i created or thought of pre-code april i mean i think people were banging about you know people were saying oh there's shocktober there's november you know, you know what else can we do basically and uh, and then that i just thought yeah actually and i chose pre-code april because a it's six months away from november so it's exactly the kind of midpoint away in the in the film year as it were and b because of the the repeated pr sound in pre-code and april because i love a bit of like really tenuous wordplay <laughs> alliteration yeah 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 um it's, it's not alliteration is it if it's if they don't start with the same it's it's something else but there, there is a oh, word maybe. but i yeah. but i can't remember what it is something something dissonant something uh, anyway I'm defer to you you're the author <laughs> <laughs> and yeah i mean person personally like pre-code movies i've seen lots and lots of uh of 30s movies for example and according to my sort of pre-code my at this point massive pre-code letterboxed list i've seen 175 pre-code movies basically so 175 movies between um 1929 and 1934 but it's still a fairly big i mean yeah to give you some example of the scale i've been doing this list for a while now and the list is currently at 815 wow. so yes i've seen 175 pre-code movies but there's still over like 600 more to see basically i mean that's enough for like 25 pre-code aprils so i could be uh i could be at this for a while <laughs> yeah what are you wasting time with us um, for <laughs> yeah well it's funny you should say that because i literally did watch two pre-code movies today before before speaking to you um just to kind of get some of the some of them out of the way um to concentrate on a, a sort of more specific 30 i've invited like everybody hopefully as wide i've cast as wide a net as i could think of like on twitter and i've asked people if they'd be interested and I've signed people up to a, to a, a Twitter list of people who have expressed an interest in it. Basically what I would like is for everybody to watch a pre-code movie. Ideally everybody watches a pre-code movie a day in April and then tweets about it using the hashtag pre-code April without any like um, hyphens or anything. But really there are no hard and fast rules and people are free to do whatever, like as much or as little as they like within that, whether it's watching one film in the entire month and just writing about that um, or watching three movies a day, five movies a day for the entire month. You know, it, you know, basically whatever people want to do, whether it's you know simply post posters, post images, post gifs, post links to articles, to reviews, whether it's their own reviews. I really don't mind as long as people just add the hashtag Precode April to everything. You know, we'll see what it is. Basically, it's the first, it's the first one. Um, I'm hoping it's enough of a success that people enjoy, have fun doing it and want to do it again next year. If the current traffic is any uh, indication, if you go out and look at the hashtag pre-code April now, it is kind of a crowdsourced thing. So you've you've initiated or you've kind of piqued everyone's you know interest or whichever, but then people are sharing their lists and sharing, hey, here's where I go to see them and, and things like that. So it's already been, even though we're not in April yet, or when we're recording this, we're a day away from April, but there's been a lot of traffic. And, and I think if that's in any indication, it's going to be a success. Surely most of that traffic is me, isn't it? <laughs> this, <point. laughs> this guy's so humble. <laughs> no, but I mean, I'm aware of the fact that I've, I've done an awful lot of kind of inviting people. I've basically, you know, I've, I follow a lot of people on Twitter anyway. 
And so, and I particularly follow a lot of like old movie fans and things like that. So if anybody has kind of mentioned a pre-code movie or said they're watching one or has, you know, just, just posted an image of somebody in a pre-code movie, I've, I've kind of asked them, hey, can I possibly rope you in for pre-code April? Uh, what have you? I think I started doing that back in maybe November. So I've had a good kind of four months of four or five months of kind of trying to round people up for this. I think there are about 200 people on the list that said they were interested and said they were keen to get involved and I mean honestly if even a quarter of those people do it and really go for it then uh, that'd be brilliant I'd be over, I'd be overjoyed yeah actually uh, having said that though like what you just said about like people getting involved in the sort of traffic and stuff like that I have although a couple of people have sent me their pre-code April lists on, from Letterboxd I've also seen people's lists pop up who haven't sent me their lists who are doing it basically you know, without without feeling the need to kind of tell me about it, basically, which is really nice. And I hope that, I hope, like, you know, next time I go to Letterbox, you know, in a, in a week's time or so, there'll be like loads of them, and and uh, and lots of people will be doing it. That would be brilliant. I mean, you can't even really call it a genre because it because it covers so many actual genres. I mean, it's not really a, a genre in the sense that film noir is a genre, but there are yeah, it covers everything like gangster movies, horror movies, sex comedies, you know, social issue dramas um all sorts of stuff like that basically and um and so there's plenty of variety within that genre if you're if uh, sorry within the within the pre-code kind of umbrella if you like is it an era then uh period i guess it's a yeah i guess it's a era period yeah yeah yeah, yeah. i mean i think it's i think it's i think people think of it as a genre at this point because there are enough like there are enough kind of common elements in pre-code movies that make them interesting as pre-code movies so, for example, sex, drugs, violence, you know, language, what have you, uh, so, uh, hard-hitting social social stuff. I think there are enough, like, common elements, as we just said, like, to, to call it a genre. I wouldn't, like, you know, if somebody online goes and calls it a genre, I'm not going to correct them, if you see what I mean. But but you know what I mean? It's not like exactly, it's not like, it's not a genre in the way we typically think of the word. Right, right. Yeah, and I think I've seen enough people refer to it as a as a time period that I, I think that's what I would, I would consider it to be. It's that time between you know when when talkies first started and then when the code gets introduced and then enforced but yeah for, for our listeners so we've been banding about the pre-code and talking about the code and things like that and you hinted a little bit about some of the uh the the things that you see in in pre-code movies what elements of i guess the code or what elements will you see in pre-code movies that you won't see in movies that are uh, been released under the Hayes Code, I really wish I'd brought up that. There's an image online of, in fact, I've got a picture of it. I'll, I'll, uh, it's a really good kind of photograph that uh, does exactly. It was kind of created around the time to to illustrate exactly that. And the photo shows. You know, I'm just going to find it. And Matthew, while, while you're looking that up, I just wanted to clarify uh, as far as the hashtag Precode April, this is taking place on Twitter, correct? Are there any other social platforms you're you're working on, or just mostly Twitter? It's it's pr- no, it's just Twitter. In terms of okay. the stuff I'll be retweeting and re and kind of looking at and what have you and sharing and, uh, and what have you, it's yeah, it's just Twitter. I know I've got at least one American friend who is um, who is doing it on Facebook, or who has like started posting it on Facebook, and I, I hadn't quite realized that hashtags work as well as they do on Facebook. Um, so maybe in a, maybe next year, um, if this t- really takes off, then maybe yeah, I'll do it Facebook next year as well, and, and perhaps Instagram as well. But uh, yeah, for the moment, it's ju- it is just um, Twitter. It's really annoying me that I can't find that um, that photo. Oh, I know it's here somewhere. Give me a second. 
Yeah, I've got it. It's really good. It shows basically it's a pic, it's a it's a poster image. It's quite well known because I think it was created around the time. It's a kind of it's basically a list of no-nos. So it says, "Thou shalt not one law defeated, two inside of thigh, three lace lingerie, four dead man, five narcotics, six drinking, seven exposed bosom, eight gambling, nine pointing gun, ten Tommy gun." So I mean, those are the <laughs> sorts of things stuff. that we're getting. Those are, and it's so it's a poster that shows literally all of those things in one poster, and it's like a like a list of don'ts, a list of things that the Hays Code would come down hard on. You mentioned the law will not be defeated. That's one of the things that surprised me. I mean, I think when you're talking about censorship code, sex and and gambling and things like that, there are certain things that make sense. But but there was the rule that the bad guy can never always has to come to terms with what he's done nothing good can ever happen to the bad guy at the end of the movie evil mustn't go unpunished basically exactly yeah yeah Yeah, exactly that crime must not pay yeah actually to be fair like in the in the gangster movies yes the gangsters are glamorous and whatever but they do pretty much come to sticky ends i think even in the even in the pre-code era well i did i did an interview recently talking about kind of what what sort of my first introduction to it and i'm pretty sure my first introduction to it was the james cagney film public enemy which I saw when I was a teenager. And I remember being really shocked by that ending. Do you know, do you happen to know the ending of Public Enemy? I don't really want to spoil it in case anybody, in case anybody watches it because of this podcast, but it's it's a gangster movie. James Cagney is just absolutely amazing in it. It's kind of quite violent. It's an extremely violent film, actually. Like he's, you know, he's a pretty nasty piece of work generally. And we were talking about like criminals getting their come up and he gets his come up and in an extremely nasty way. It's basically the final shot of the movie. And it's it's really memorable because it is just so like bloody hell can't believe they did that <laughs> um so that made quite quite an impression i mean i mean public enemy is famous for cagney pushing a grapefruit in may clark's face like that's the main mm-hmm. that's the main thing everybody remembers from that movie but for me like the ending of that movie is just as memorable um, i mean i literally you know it's been 30 years probably since i saw that and I, those two scenes are you know burned into my brain whereas i can't really remember anything else about the rest of the film yeah, we recently interviewed Jeremy Arnold from TCM, and, and he, he gave us a top 10 list of his Oscar picks, classic Oscar, Oscar picks, and uh, talked about a few films, you know, things like Silence of the Lambs, where there are those scenes or those characters that, even if you haven't seen it in decades, are still so vivid. You know, they just stick in your mind for years and years, and uh, yeah. as, if, as if you saw them yesterday. I, uh, for Silence of the Lambs, like I saw that, I was working in the cinema when that came out, so, and I was an usher, and in those days you could sit in on the entire film. Uh, if you were in usher, so I saw like Silence of the Lambs like fifty times. I think, <laughs> like I saw it, I saw it so many times. That leave a mark uh, that I knew. <laughs> yeah, I just knew it sort of back to front. Saying there were a handful of nineteen ninety one movies that that's the same that that's true for uh, the Rocketeer, uh, Dances with Wolves. I saw a lot of times. The Commitments. I must have seen over like over like sixty times. Yeah, loads of loads of things like that. Basically, it was great. Well, here's a question for you. Um, you think it's about something like Silence of the Lambs and the the violence and the insinuated violence and and uh, the psychopathic behavior, an R rating, obviously. When when we talk about some of the components of the pre-code films, uh, some of the things on that list would seem to qualify a modern film for an R rating as well. But how do you think a majority of those films from that era would measure up on a current scale of film rating? You know, G, PG, R, etc. Um, that's a good question. And to be honest, I think probably they would get quite high ratings. Like they, maybe, I mean, here in the UK, we have 15s, 18s, 12As, PGs and Us. So it's not quite the same as an R rating and a, and a PG-13 or whatever it is. And one of the things that's actually quite common in pre-code movies is depictions of suicide and stuff like that. 
Um, I mean, more often than not, it's the, it's typical like the door close, you know, the guns in the desk, and then the door closes, and you hear the shot from the other side of the of the of the room from outside the room. But like very often, it's it's quite full on the depictions and the sort of you know the way those scenes are, the scenes kind of play out and what have you. And that's I know that's quite certainly over here. That's quite a big thing suicide that tends to that tends to put a rating to go quite high rating so on that alone it would a lot of them would get 15s at minimum here language you don't get much you don't get much real swearing in the 30s movies um so it does kind of stick out when you do when the odd word slips in mostly they all do that thing where where they say son of a and then like there's a cut or there's a sound that obscures the word or you know things like that you very rarely I, i did watch a film the other night where somebody said bollocks but that's more of a that's more of a British thing than it is an American thing. Um, got bollocks. I mean, I don't know how many of your listeners would know. Bollocks over here is sort of British slang for testicles. Right. But the Amer- <laughs> Americans tend to use it as, and, and we use it to, to mean like something's messed up. If something gets bollocksed up, then it gets messed up. It gets you know screwed up or whatever. And that was the context that they used it in. And uh, I watched Frank Capra's Lady for a Day the other night. And uh, the lead character said, uh, we don't want to bollocks this up. Uh, I think it's slightly different. It's, you know, like I said, slightly stronger here than it is there. Um, violence. There's there's a surprising amount of blood in uh, pre-code movies, on-screen depictions of blood. Again, blood is not, it's actually not mentioned in that thing I read out earlier, but uh, but that was definitely something that got cleaned up by the Hayes Code. Like if you think of like, you know, one shot and somebody dies in 40s movies or like late 30s to 40, you know, after the Hayes Code, whereas... People are getting shot more times. There's a lot more of those actual blood, sometimes quite nasty. Horror is surprisingly strong in some pre-code movies. There's one called Murders in the Zoo, Mm. which has quite possibly one of the most horrible images I've ever seen in any movie, let alone like, you know, in, uh, let alone in Monday movies. It's and certainly, and it really sticks out for the thirties. It's a really horrible, I mean, you can Google it very easily. There's a GIF of it. But there's a really horrible image from that movie that's that's genuinely shocking. I, my my I watched that with my wife a couple of years ago, and she she was traumatized by it. Basically, <laughs> <laughs> she doesn't really want to watch any more pre-code movies because she's she's worried that she'll see something like that again. Yikes! What else? So yeah, so blood's quite a big thing. Rape is a big thing too. Like there's a lot of quite nasty, like you know, not full-on explicit nudity rape, but certainly. Certainly, much stronger than you're used to seeing in in again, you know, third, late 30s, 40s, 50s, post-code movies. So when it happens, like it's it's often very nasty, and in, and in particular, like the aftermath. I mean, actually, it's 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 a lot more honest, really, because the aftermath of those scenes is often really horrible. Like I watched a uh, I recently watched a film called Massacre from 1934, which is brilliant, actually where Richard Bartholmes is, is playing, I don't know if you, if you pronounce it Bartholmes, I'm, I'm pronouncing it Bartholmes, could be completely different, <laughs> but it's spelled Bartholmes, so I'm pronouncing it that way. He plays like an Indian who has kind of enjoyed success. He's, he's been able to like leave his reservation and, and has found success as a kind of like rodeo star, but borderline actor. But anyway, he's kind of moved away from his, from his roots and he's called back to his reservation because his father is sick. And he comes, and he comes back and he finds all this kind of really horrible exploitation of Indians basically and you know getting them getting swindled out of their land and out of uh, and his 15 year old sister gets raped basically and so he finds his sister and his, and you've seen like the guy 
you know, you've seen her rapist kind of try to kiss her and sort of grab her. And then it, you know, and then it's cuts to what's happening in another room. And then like, he, and then late, like a minute later, he finds her outside and she's, and her clothes are really torn and she's crying. And, and it's, just, it's just really, really horrible. And you just don't see that stuff. Like I said, in the sort of uh, post-Cope movies. So um, social issues and, uh, and sex, obviously, are the, are the two other things. So it's not so much sex as in you see people having sex. It's more the suggestion and the very obvious like there's a lot of affairs, for example, um, that often go unpunished and are often just kind of accepted and what have you. There are, whereas later, in later movies, women are very often, very frequently punished for having affairs or for straying or what have you, men too. There's a lot of kind of suggestion that people have just stayed overnight. There's an awful lot of kind of negligee scenes, I suppose, rather than actual nudity. More innuendo, would you say? More of that kind of innuendo. Um, well, yeah, the, the the negligee stuff is pretty is pretty racy. Uh, there's a lot of bath scenes, for example, um, some famous ones. Claudette Colbert bathing in bathing in milk in the sign of the cross is one. Joan Blondell is a, that's a very famous bath scene. Jean Harlow, um, sort of nude shower scenes and stuff like that in Red Dust, stuff like that. Um, something else. Yeah, it's not so much like I said, it's not so much the actual activity. It's more like the suggestion and the very definite like. Yes, that person stayed the night. Yes, that person. Yes, those people, those characters definitely had sex kind of thing rather than the, it all being very sort of chased and what have you. What were those scenes again? Hang on, I couldn't write them down quick enough. <laughs> <laughs> we can listen to the recording. It'll all be there. Um, and the um, social issues too, like in particular, alcoholism, drug use, um, poverty, gambling, all those things again, like really, on oh, prostitution as well, like all those things, very sort of prominent in um, in lots of pre-code movies. Now here's a question: something that we hear a lot of now is the the term gratuitous or the glorification. Um, the arguments made that you know Hollywood is is driving the glorification and and of of violence and and graft and all this immoral behavior. You still hear those arguments. Do you feel like pre-code movies glorify it, or do they just show it? more than a postcode film i feel they show it they were i feel like they were telling it like it is there's a bit of kind of i mean obviously you go to see a gangster movie you're expecting people to get shot and people and there to be gunfights and sure. betrayals and things like that you go to see a sex comedy you're expecting sex um you go to see a horror movie you're expecting horror so are they is it gratuitous in that context no i don't think so I mean, even something like King Kong is technically a pre-code movie and pre- mm-hmm. King Kong is famous for Faye Ray being kind of, you know, in her neg- negligee being carried up the, grabbed out the window and carried up the building, the Empire State Building. Um, is that gratuitous? Should Faye Ray be wearing more clothes? <laughs> <laughs> we'll leave it up to our listeners to decide. <laughs> um, I'm trying to think of some good examples. Like, like, like the gangster movies are probably the best examples. And as I said, most of the, you, you sort of expect a gangster to come to a sticky end right. at the end anyway. And, and also, like, those actors love playing the death scenes. Like, um, Edward G. Robinson, Mother of Mercy, is this the end of Rico? Like, that's, he's, he's still famous for that line. Like, you know, nearly, nearly 100 years later, he's still famous for that line um, from the end of Little Caesar. And, and again, th- those... Are they bad in the way we think of bad characters? The bad, the really bad characters do get 
do get killed off and what have They're you. Come up and, yeah, yeah. I don't think I don't think you're ever rooting for anybody evil. Well, and if you think about that era, um, you know, a lot of people did view the gangsters as as the heroes. I mean, that in in not only in in popular culture but in a lot of communities, uh, they were the Robin Hoods. They were the good guys. You know, I'm just I'm just curious how Hollywood portrayed them at the time. I've just brought up a uh, and again, okay, this is based on a novel, but um, the 1931 version of the Maltese Falcon is a really good example because Sam's, I mean, yes, okay, it's very true to the book in that Sam Spade in Dashiell Hammett's book is quite an amoral character. You know, he's sleeping with his partner's wife. You know, he pretty much hits on on everybody. The movie, the 1930s movie is absolutely amazing. I only watched it relatively recently for the first time, like probably about a couple of months ago for the first time. And it completely blew me away. It's it's probably my second favourite pre-code movie after Freaks. It's just, it's so unbelievably sexy like he he is he is literally shagging everybody and there's about four women in the movie and he's and he's having sex with all four of them and it's just completely yeah immoral but not even but not even kind of caring there's not a flicker of sort of conscience or anything like that he's just you know enjoying his life i guess he's um and the bridget o'shaughnessy character is so much more like lascivious in the maltese falcon than the than the than uh, in the nineteen, the Bogart version, um, there's just so much more sex in it generally than there is in, in the Bogart version. It's quite, it's an extraordinary film. I highly recommend it. It is available to rent on Amazon Prime, on Amazon um, Instant Video, if uh, if anybody wants to see it. And I really recommend it. That's a good segue into what it, uh, the next thing I wanted to ask you. And and first of all, one thing I found is once you start looking into pre-code and the code and things like that, you even start looking at current movies and thinking whether or not that would be allowed you know within the code and i remember watching i care a lot recently and wondering and and as we get towards the end i'm starting to think boy this one maybe fly um, in the haze code and then i'm not going to give away the ending but the question i have for you is your favorite so you mentioned that maltese falcon might be your second favorite i guess it's two questions what do you think is the best pre-code film so if there was one kind of must see or i can only see one pre-code film what do you think is the best and what is your favorite if it's different i think the answer to both is probably freaks todd browning's uh, story about um circus freaks um just because the ending is so shocking and uh, and just the stuff you see in it is unlike anything else you'll see um it's literally just i mean it was ripped off by or paid homage to by American Horror Story, so yeah, it's it's just a story of circus freaks who they get the exact revenge on somebody basically at the end of the movie, and it's, it's in a sort of very famous way. It's still a very odd movie in many ways, but it's so memorable that, that yeah, I think that's that's probably the one. Again, I think it's important to remember that it's pre-code, so they weren't making a pre-code movie because they didn't know the code was coming. They were making 30s movies. They were making just just what they were making. That's what Hollywood was doing. There's no awareness of of how risque everything is in those movies. It's just what you know. That's the way the movies are at that point. There is a certain amount of like things you can get away with. Uh, so so probably my third favorite film, and certainly my favorite of the gangster films, is Scarface, the original Scarface, which isn't so so much. It's not so much the gangster stuff that's shocking in that movie. It's the incestuous relationship between him, between Paul Mooney and his sister and Dvorak. 
and it's that's just an extraordinary kind of relationship on on screen where where it's it's very clear that he he has incestuous desire for his sister and not only that but she's kind of don't know if into it is the right word but she's certainly aware of it and and definitely manipulates it let's put it that way and again it's been years since i've seen it but uh, i saw the gif recently and that was <laughs> i posted the gif from it recently and that mm. was enough to maybe want to watch it again and it's i think it's often said that like or maybe all that incestuous stuff went under the radar of of people who were I mean, like I said, the code didn't exist, but there were still people who, there were still kind of people who would, studios would still interfere and say, okay, you can't do that or whatever, you know, the way they the way they do anyway. Um, and it's often said that like the incestuous stuff went under the radar because of the violence happening in the rest of the movie, because they were so kind of focused on the guns and the shooting and the killing or whatever, that they missed all the, they missed all the actual racy stuff. I guess the only other main example I haven't mentioned yet is Gold Diggers of 1933 which is the other kind of must-see. If there's a must-see in each kind of genre, I would say it's Freaks for um, for horror, Maltese Falcon for kind of thriller, Scarface for gangster movies, Gold Diggers of 1933 for musicals, probably a three and a match for sexual drama, I suppose. It Happened One Night, probably one of the all-time great romantic comedies. It's not extremely pre-code, but it does have little racy elements to it. But yes, back to Gold Diggers of 1933, and that's a Busby Berkeley musical. Um, so he's famous, kind of these like huge, like lavish choreographed routines, but also for showing an awful lot of kind of flesh and and for, yeah, so the costumes are practically non-existent in a lot of those movies. Surprisingly salacious in terms of the songs and the, and the you know, what the, what the movie's actually about. So yeah, highly recommend that as well. Well, follow-up to that question is, where can our listeners find some of these pre-code films? Are are a lot of them available? Uh, like you said, the the original Maltese Falcon from 31 is is on Amazon Prime. Are there a lot of them on the streaming services? Do you have to hunt them down on eBay, on DVD, or VHS, God forbid? <laughs> I just did a list of films that are available on, the, on Amazon Prime in the UK, and there's only a very small handful of those. There are quite a few available. on A lot of the big ones are available on Amazon Instant Video, so you can rent them. There, let's just say that every single film you can possibly think of is out there somewhere. That's good news. But in terms of legal avenues for watching movies, um, there are yeah, there are plenty of options. Like there's, a lot of these films are in the public domain anyway. So there's a pre-code cinema channel on YouTube that has at least 200 movies on it. The latter, if you look at my pre-code letterbox list on letterbox, the latter, like I said, there's currently about 815 movies on it. And everything from about 650 on that list onwards through to 815 is on the Precode Cinema YouTube channel. Similarly, there are other like there are films that maybe are not on the Precode Cinema channel that are on YouTube anyway. It's just a question of searching for full movies. Um, there are other streaming sites. If you look around for other streaming sites, like you will find movies in the public domain plus movies that people put up anyway. Yeah, like I said, there are there are a bunch on Amazon Prime. Not that many, only probably about only fifteen or so on Amazon Prime in the UK. Anyway, there may be well, there may be quite a lot more in the US. Actually, having said that, certainly enough to get someone started. Yeah, 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 yeah. And you can rent a load of them on uh, on um, Amazon Instant Video too. Like, there's a lot of the very a lot of the kind of famous titles are available to rent on Amazon Instant Video. And I would also say, like, if anybody is looking for a movie a particular movie that they want to see, especially in Precode April, then DM me on Twitter because I or, or just find me on Twitter because I can help you find it very easily. 
Um, so I'm at filmfan1971 on Twitter and uh, I'm happy to kind of, yeah, like I say, point you in the right direction, basically. All right. Well, thank you, uh, Matthew. So Matthew turns our guest, as he said, at filmfan1971, 1971 on Twitter. You can search the hashtag precodeapril, all one word, uh, to find out more information about Precode April. Matthew's going to be sticking around. We have a couple of more questions for him about award season and the UK take on films and things like that. So Matthew will be sticking around. Um, so I hope you do too. We'll come back on Island and Aver. Welcome back to Heilman and Haver. Today is April 2nd, and on this day in 1968, 2001 A Space Odyssey, directed by Stanley Kubrick, premiered at the Uptown Theater in Washington, D.C., and so the world was all introduced to HAL. Voiced by actor Douglas Rain, the HAL 9000 supercomputer guides mankind through time and space with its now-famous disembodied voice to find its origins. Director Stanley Kubrick won an Oscar for this film's visual effects, his sole win from 13 nominations. And according to IMDb, at the premiere screening, 241 people walked out of the theater, including actor Rock Hudson, who said, Will someone tell me what the hell this is about? Arthur C. Clarke, who wrote the screenplay, once said, If you understand 2001 completely, we failed. Clarke later expressed some concern that the film was too hard to follow and explained things more fully in the novelization and subsequent sequels. And born today in 1914, British actor Sir Alec Guinness, immortalized in the role of Jedi Master and mentor to Luke Skywalker, Obi-Wan Kenobi, in George Lucas's original Star Wars trilogy, for which he received the nomination for an Academy Award for Best Supporting Actor. Guinness had a love-hate relationship with his most famous role and claimed that Obi-Wan's death was his idea in an effort to limit his involvement in the movie. And let's get one thing straight. He never uttered the line, may the force be with you, in any of the Star Wars films. The closest he came was, the Force will be with you. What frustrated Guinness most about his involvement in Star Wars were the millions of fans who knew him only as Obi-Wan, to the exclusion of all of his other work. As one of the last surviving members of a great generation of British actors, which included Sir Lawrence Olivier, Sir John Gielgud, and Sir Ralph Richardson, uh, who made the transition from Shakespearean theater in England to Hollywood blockbusters uh, right after the Second World War, Guinness also appeared in classics like Lady Killers in 1955, The Bridge on the River Kwai in 1957, Lawrence of Arabia in 1962, and, my favorite, as blind, scheming butler, James Bensonmum in Neil Simon's 1976 murder mystery farce, Murder by Death. And joining us today is a man who probably knows a thing or two about great British actors, our friend, UK film critic Matthew Turner. So, Matthew, in our ongoing coverage of the Academy Awards uh, coming up April 25th, um, I wanted to get your input. Uh, Sasha Baron Cohen, Carrie Mulligan, Olivia Colman, uh, Daniel Kaluuya, and uh, Sir Anthony Hopkins are among the British stars nominated for this year's Oscars. Obviously, many British actors and actresses have taken Little Gold Men back across the Atlantic. But what do the Oscars themselves uh, mean to folks in the UK? Does it carry much water in England uh, as far as an awards ceremony? Or is most of the focus there on the, uh, the BAFTA awards? I'm a bit biased because I'm, I'm an Oscars nut. So, you know, I'm an extreme Oscars fan. So <laughs> Good answer. And Oscars obsessive even. So, and I really have a lot of issues with the BAFTAs. Uh, so I don't pay any attention to what wins the BAFTAs, but I pay all the attention to what wins the Oscars. And certainly before, I mean, 30 years ago, before I became a film critic, you know, when I was just seeing lots of movies in cinemas, yeah, I guess seeing, I guess like, I think I know for a fact that like when a film wins an Oscar, it 
has an increased box office. It has, an, a, mm-hmm. you know, it does better at the box office in the UK as well as in the US. So even audiences that don't necessarily watch the Oscars will still pay attention to what wins the Oscars. Like, so if something wins Best Picture, if somebody wins Best Actor, if somebody wins Best Actress, those movies will will be seen more than they would have done if they hadn't won. Whether that same is true for Best Screenplay, for Best Director, for Best Supporting Actor, Supporting Actress even, I'm not sure. But definitely the kind of the big ones will have that impact. And yeah, I mean, it's, it's hard for me to answer that question properly because all of my friends, like a lot of my friends are film critics and a lot of my friends are Oscars nuts. So... So, like, I'm I'm in this kind of Oscar obsessed bubble. Plus, I vote myself in in two awards, di- different awards bodies. I'm a member of the Online Film, film Critics Society, and I'm also a member of the London um, Film Critics Circle. So, we have our own awards season as well, and it's always interesting to compare. So, generally speaking, yes, people pay attention. The the, the ceremony is broadcast on Sky Cinema over here um, live. It used to be years ago, years and years ago, it used to be on the BBC. Um, so yeah, there is there is an interest. It will be on the news, like you know, the, the news covers the BBC News covers the nomination, the live nomination uh, announcement, you know, that kind of thing. To be to be completely honest, like for me, the nominations is the most exciting part of the entire award season. Like once the nominations are over, I kind of lose a little bit of interest after that. What's exciting to me is what gets nominated, what gets snubbed, what gets what are the surprises, what are the shocks. You know, what are the what are the big emissions and things like that? I mean, to be fair, like I think this year is a pretty good year. Uh, but in previous years, it can often be quite boring, especially because the Oscars is always the last thing in award season. So by that point, you feel like you've seen how award season is going to play out anyway. And it's either is it going to do this or is it going to do its own thing? But uh, there are very few surprises usually come Oscar night. And that's kind of what you watch it for. Is the surprises in the shocks and what have you? I mean, the whole like, obviously, the whole Moonlight and La La Land thing is something else. <laughs> the, <laughs> but, the um, spectacle of it, yeah. But it, yeah, yeah, absolutely. So you you mentioned that you've got your own uh, voting bodies over there, the, the film critics and things like that. Do do they normally align with Oscars or or are they different groups of films? Normally the same. In a normal non-COVID year, awards season is broadly the same for everybody. Yeah, there may be a couple of um, of outliers, uh, but that's very rare. Maybe sometimes a film will get released in the UK that will be nominated for a BAFTA that hasn't yet been released in the US, but that's very, very rarely the case. Um, and vice versa as well. Like maybe something gets released in the, in the US to qualify for award season and then doesn't come out over here in time. But again... Very usually the the distributors will go out of their way to make sure that something gets an gets a qualifying award screening over here the same way it does in the US. How about winners? I mean, do you guys how how do you do you know compared to you know winners in in your uh, circle versus Oscar winners? I think in both circles, I mean, I can't speak for everybody in them, but I think there is, let's say, in the in critic circles compared to the Baftas. I think there's maybe an attempt at least to try and pick something distinctive that might go unrewarded elsewhere. Certainly when you're voting and nominating, most of my friends in the circle tend to pick things that might not otherwise have a chance or might have been overlooked or so that's that's definitely what I how I try and see it. Um so I wouldn't vote for any of the kind of front runners in the nomination round because I figure they're gonna get through without my help. 
you know, so I'll, I'll vote for kind of smaller films that I think should get. But I'm inevitably disappointed having said that. Like, I, I, I tried really hard this year to kind of stump for a few movies that um, I really felt as everybody needed to see and they just got completely ignored. Like, I love Truffle Hunters, for example. Have you seen that? I've not, no. Truffle Hunters is this documentary that, again, I really thought would get a Best Picture nomination in the Oscars, and it didn't even get that. So I'm really quite sad about that. It was definitely in the running, because I listened to a few, uh, or at least one of the, the Film Swatting podcast were talking about, like, uh, their ballots and things like that for, for the Chicago Critic Circle, and they were really big on, uh, on Truffle Hunters. Truffle Hunters did pick up, like, critics' nominations, but sadly, that didn't translate to the best documentary category this year. So, yeah, I mean, h- having said that, we will also more often than not pick the same winners as everybody else, just because a lot mm. of the voting body, again, like it depends what people have seen. Like the things people tend to see, the things that that have, that have all the buzz. When you've got like a massive pile of award screeners, you're gonna like whether you're an Oscar voter or a BAFTA voter or whatever, you're gonna pick. If you're not watching films all year all year round, like critics are you're going to pick the movies that everybody's talking about. That's often how the, how the ones that maybe the people think, well, that's not a great best picture winner um, win because everybody's seen them and everybody votes for them because everybody's talking about them. Yeah. So that, and that's how that stuff happens. Basically pretty much all the sort of really egregious wins that people have like, like famous, for example, for me is crash the, uh, the Paul. Um, it's not Paul Greengrass, is it? Who is it? Paul, something who's the guy that who's the guy that directed crash Ooh, i've got imdb that one not david cronenberg's crash the other one. Oh, paul haggis yeah the fact that we can't remember that the three of us can't remember paul haggis, paul haggis yeah, yeah right the fact that we couldn't remember paul haggis like it says everything about like <laughs> about that <laughs> so yeah so the, the the so that one best picture beating brokeback mountain which you know is clearly the best pick the best picture of that year and it was beaten at the the post by uh, by Crash, which is a terrible movie, but the reason that happened is because everybody saw it and everybody was talking about it, and it was all oh, it's very worthy, it's very like anti-racism. So yeah, so all the kind of like Oscar crimes are largely because those movies are the ones that get talked about and take on a life of their own, basically. Well, we can't we can't let you go without hearing about your favorites, not only from among the British actors and actresses that are nominated for the Oscars this year, but how about Best Picture? Who who do you like the, this season? I think it's a good lineup this season, to be honest. I would say my three favourites from the Best Picture lineup are The Father, Sound of Metal, and I'll be honest, I really like The Trial of Chicago 7. I know like, it's had its kind of knockers and whatever for, uh, for whatever reason, but I, I really enjoyed it for what it was. I do like Prom- I mean, I like them all, to be honest. I really like Promising Young Woman. I really like Minari, and Nomadland is... is is also excellent. We the, the London film critics gave it to Nomadland, I think. I would probably pick the father from that list just because it really my mum's got dementia for one thing. So I'm gonna I'm always gonna mm. respond emotionally to a to a dementia movie. And that movie captures dementia like nothing else I've seen. I've seen a lot of dementia movies over the over the years as a critic. And that one absolutely captures the terror and horror of what it's like to actually have dementia as opposed to experiencing it. All the other movies are always experiencing it from the relative's point of view, from the son or daughter, as part of the wife's or husband's point of view, as their spouse or parent succumbs to it. But this really captures the kind of confusion and terror of what it must be like. Yeah, my grandmother suffered from dementia, and I, I felt exactly the same way. Um, Sir Anthony is definitely my pick for best actor this year. Yeah, mine too. 
I mean, I love Riz Ahmed, and I'm delighted that Riz Ahmed has been has been nominated. I love Steve Yuen. It's really great to see him being nominated as well. But I don't think I, you know, and Chadwick Boseman, obviously, rest in peace, etc. Of the Best Actor nominees, I don't think Gary Oldman really deserves it this year. And I actually didn't think he deserved to win for, for Churchill either. That's another example of like a, a thing that wins because everybody's talking about it without it actually being maybe as good as it, as people say it is. Like I didn't think I didn't think it was. He wasn't even the best. If, if I remember, he wasn't even the best Churchill that year. <laughs> like I think Brian Cox did a better Churchill yeah. in a different movie that same year, and you know nobody nobody was talking about that. Hundred percent, Anthony Hopkins for me for that for that category this year. Speaking of Mank, um, from a uh, outside of the U.S. perspective, you know you often see these films that the ones that get the most nominations uh, generally take home the Best Picture award. Is that is that something that you see as being um, a legitimate way to judge a film? Because it has the most nominations. Yeah, the most nominations across the most categories. Does that should that automatically you know qualify a film as the Best Picture? I think if a film is going to pick up multiple nominations across multiple categories, then it deserves to be in the Best Picture lineup. That's, I guess that's how I look at it. Whether it deserves to win Best Picture, not necessarily. But I mean, I'm sure that if we went through a list of films that have, had, that have had the most nominations and that also won Best Picture, we'd probably think most of them deserve them. But again, like in this particular case, it's, it's, Manx's quite interesting because... A lot of the awards bodies didn't give it either either didn't nominate it for best picture or certainly didn't give it the best picture award and obviously hollywood loves movies about hollywood right. so mank was always going to do better in the oscars than it has done elsewhere um so i mean that also explains um oldman's nomination too i think but i would probably i mean i liked it but I didn't love it, and I really wanted to love it. But yeah. it, like, it should have been right up my street. I love the way it looked. I love the performances. I thought Amanda Seyfried was great, and for my money, Amanda Seyfried would would deserve would would win. You know, for my money, she deserves to win Best Supporting Actress. I think she is the Best Supporting Actress in that in that category. But yeah, I didn't I didn't love it, and I haven't given it a second chance yet. I haven't watched it. I haven't rewatched it. But yeah, for me, it's probably the least of the in that category. If I was going to rank them, I think it would probably be like at the bottom or close to the bottom. Yeah, I was a bit surprised. I mean, even within what we just said about Hollywood loving movies about Hollywood, I was still surprised that it picked up quite as many nominations as it did. And I did. Oh, I was, going to, I was just about to say I did laugh out loud because David Fincher wasn't nominated for Best Director, but he was nominated for Best Director. So, uh, yeah, I forget I said that. <laughs> I guess the question is, will we get to watch him take a shot every time he doesn't win like we did during the Golden Globes? That's right. Oh, I missed the Golden Globes this year. I didn't bother watching. Um, yeah, but... so so fin- Fincher, every time Mank was nominated for something that they didn't win, he took a shot. So... <laughs> Fair play to him. That's the way to do it, I guess. <laughs> Some of the other categories are really interesting. I think the Best Director round is really excellent. The Best Director nominations are really excellent this year. Like, absolutely thrilled with that. Um, and I think that's a direct result of COVID-19, of this particular award season year, is that we've got that lineup. I would think that in a normal year, something like, for example, uh, News of the World would have, would have been in the Oscar lineup. I love that movie, and it is absolutely isn't the sort of thing you can see getting nominations for Best Picture, nomination for Best Director, for Best Actor, for Best Supporting Actress. And the fact that it was actually, in the end, shut out completely was a real shame, I think. 
Well, we're going to keep an eye on things, and we sure appreciate your expert, uh, your expertise. We'll have to touch base with you again and get your take on the ever-surprising, ever-scintillating results of the <laughs> of the Oscars. So, Matthew, thanks so much for your time um, today, obviously talking about uh, stuff from 100 years ago and, and current stuff, and we appreciate your, <laughs> your input as always. Thank you very much. Cheers. Follow Matthew and get involved in the Precode April festivities on Twitter on his page at at FilmFan1971. And if you're a fan of the erotic thriller genre, check out his podcast, Fatal Attractions, on iTunes and the show's Twitter page at at FatalAttractPod, both linked in the show notes. And solve that eternal debate, what should we watch tonight? With Matthew's book, What to Watch When, a thousand TV shows for every mood and moment. Make sure to check out Matthew's reviews on the Film Discussion social media page letterbox. Just search Film Fan 1971, all one word, F-I-L-M-F-A-N-1971, and check out his Hidden Gems column on vodzilla.co for more viewing ideas. Join us next Friday, April 9th, when we'll be joined by another friend of the show, TCM author, film historian, and commentator Jeremy Arnold. We'll share his top 10 classic Oscar winners with us and a few more must-see films from his latest book, The Essentials Volume 2, 52 More Must-See Movies and Why They Matter, recently published by Running Press and Turner Classic Movies. And remember, Heilman and Haver can now be heard every week. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, YouTube, Amazon Audible, iHeartRadio, Spotify, and Pandora. And if you enjoy the show, make sure to follow us and share the podcast with a friend. We'd love to hear from you, so please join the conversation on Facebook and Twitter and email us with thoughts and comments at heilmanandhaber at gmail.com. And until we're treading the boards together again, thanks for supporting local theater and for joining us on Heilman and Haber.